Second Peter, chapter three, beginning in verse one, Peter writes, beloved, I now write to you the second epistle in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of a reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The tone of Peter's letter changes in chapter three. In chapter two, Peter provided a word of examination concerning the false teachers and the false prophets. He spoke of their condemnation in verses one through nine, their character in verses 10 through 17, their claims in verses 10 through or 18 through 22. And now Peter picks up his shepherd's staff and he reveals his shepherd's heart. Now, Peter isn't simply concerned about warning the Christian about false teachers, but exhorting the true Christian, exhorting them about his personal affection. Four times in this chapter, Peter will use the word beloved. And when you see the word beloved in chapter three, the right way of thinking about it is he speaking of you? He's talking about you. He loves the person that he's writing to. He tenderly cares for them. This second epistle, beloved, beloved, I now write to you in verses one through seven. But beloved, be not ignorant, verses eight through ten. Beloved. Be diligent, verses 11 through 14. Beloved, beware. Again, he will also speak of three worlds. The present world in which we live in, in verses 1 through 5, verses 7 through 12, verses 14 and 18. He will talk about a world that's disappeared. An ancient world in verses five and six. And then in verse 13, he's going to talk about a new world that's coming. In verse 13, it says, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Concerning the present world, Peter appeals to the truths that were spoken of in the Old Testament by the Old Testament prophets in verses one and two. 
by the New Testament apostles in verse two, and even the truth that was revealed to us and spoken to us by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in verse two. So Peter warns that skeptics and scoffers, unbelievers will come in the last days. They will falsify the facts concerning the future judgment by fire in verses three and four. They're going to say, so Jesus promised to come back, did he? Well, he died in the 30s and the 40s have come and gone and the 50s have come and gone and and the 60s are now now here. He's talking about 60 A.D. And you can imagine that 500 years went by and a thousand years went by and 1500 years have gone by and almost 2000 years have come and gone. And the skeptics and the scoffers appear in every generation laughing and mocking. Peter says they will not only falsify the facts concerning the future judgment, they will deliberately Forget the facts concerning a past global judgment by water. The same God who once sent a flood will in the future send a fire. It says in verse 7, in verse 10, in verse 12. But a new world is coming. A future earth is coming. The plans of God and the promises of God are coming. Now, literally millions of people are intrigued and fascinated, even obsessed with the subject of the end of the world. Secular scientists envision catastrophic circumstances where the earth is destroyed by a meteor shower or a gamma ray burst or a volcanic eruption, the depletion of the ozone layer of the earth being stripped away or gravitational forces plunging the earth into an icy death or soaring to a sudden and searing end. Others paint a picture of utopia where science discover unlimited resources for fuel, whether it's through cold fusion or or some adaptation where we get unlimited energy powers and resources, where medical breakthroughs take place that prolong life, where human beings are able to go beyond the confines of the planet and populate the stars. And if I weren't a Christian... If I didn't believe that the Bible was true, if I never accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I would probably gravitate to one of those two extremes of disaster or delusion. I would believe that it's all going to end catastrophically or I would believe the fantastic delusion that man will create a man-made heaven on the earth. But I do believe the Bible. I believe that the Bible is true. And when we look at the Bible and when we see what the Bible says about the future, we can embrace realism and optimism. The Bible has a whole lot to say about the future. And let me be very clear here. The Bible has a whole lot to say about the future. And everything that the Bible says about the future is true. Jesus will return. In the first service, I was talking with a young lady who was frustrated. Because there's so many different views of how the end times will take place. 
there's dispensational premillennialism, historic premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism, and which one is true and which one is false. And I said, calm down. Do you know what all of them have in common? All of them believe without exception that Jesus Christ will return physically, bodily, in glory. It will happen. Jesus will come back. And I'm here to tell you something else. The Bible repeatedly promises that Jesus will return physically, bodily, not metaphorically or allegorically or metaphysically in some sort of distant kind of way or that he will be remembered in the minds of his followers. The Bible teaches that Jesus will return to defeat the Antichrist and the world's nations that are assembled in what has been called the Battle of Armageddon in Revelation chapter 19, verses 17 through 21. The Lord will regather, regenerate and restore faithful Israel. This is in Isaiah 43, 5 and 6, Jeremiah 24, 6, Ezekiel eleven seventeen. 17. Ezekiel 36, 28, Amos chapter 9, verses 14 and 15. And so you don't come up to me afterwards and say, God doesn't have a plan for Israel. Because I don't believe that. Jesus will judge and punish faithless Israel, it says in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 21. Jesus will separate the sheep from the goats, according to Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Jesus will resurrect the Old Testament saints and those killed in a great tribulation. That, according to Job chapter 19, 25 and 26, Daniel 12, 2, John 5, 28 and 29, Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. The list goes on and on. The Bible's depiction of the end of the world was never ever to simply satisfy the curious or the fascinated. When the Bible speaks of the end of the world, always, without exception, there's a component of warning. Curious fascination is never a substitute for personal preparation. The world falls into two categories. Those who have received God's son. And those who are preparing to receive God's son. Jesus will return. As Lord and Savior for some. But for others. It will signal. Judgment. And so Peter says. Beloved. And he's using that word. Purposely and specifically. He doesn't say belittled. He also doesn't say that you are somehow beneath him. You are loved. And because you are loved, he says, I now write to you the second epistle in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of a reminder. Prepare yourself, arouse your mind so that you can recall and you can remember. Peter expresses his concern and affection, and he calls this his second letter. Now, we've spent a great deal of time studying the first epistle of Peter. We went through all five chapters, and if you missed any portion, it's available in the media room. 
He mentions this second letter and then he mentions in both of them, the first one and the second one. I wanted to stir up your pure minds. I want to draw your attention to that expression. There are two main words translated pure in the New Testament. The first is hagnos, which goes to the idea of holiness. It's a purity based on holiness, and it's used eight times that way in the New Testament. The second word that's used is katharos. It's used 28 times, and katharos means to cleanse or to purge. Oddly enough, here, Peter doesn't use either of those words. He uses the word Eli, krenis. The word appears here only, and in Philippians chapter 1, verse 10, the, the word itself, Elias, or Eli, comes from the sun. And the word krino meant to judge. And so when you put both of those words together, in both of which I stir up your pure minds, the pure minds means a mind that is exposed to broad daylight or sunlight or the judgment that comes from the broad daylight. You probably heard the expression that you can see stuff better in the broad daylight. And I think that that's part of the idea. Some Greek scholars favor the idea that it's transparent or clear. Some favor the idea that the sun purges and cleanses or winnows. Whatever the idea that is being made here, it's the idea that the mind can be lazy or diligent. The mind can be informed or uninformed. The point that I think that Peter is making is that if you want to know the truth about the end times, if you want to know about the second coming, if you want to know about the end of all things, Peter seems to be saying, OK, clear your mind, purify your mind, focus. I don't want to contaminate your brain with the way the world thinks or believes. I want your mind to be informed by credible sources. And who better to get your information from than the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles and the Lord Jesus Christ? I call this end times sunshine mind. This is a mind that's exposed to the pure light and it's found flawless. This is something that's clear. Now, remember, that's the opposite of not clear. This is pure, not impure. This is focused, not wandering. And this is the mind that's informed by the word of God and the apostles of God and the son of God. Why is that important for you and for me? Because we live in a world where people are getting their information from suspect sources. In verse 2, Peter says that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. Who's that? That's all of the Old Testament saints who wrote in your Bible. This is Moses. This is Isaiah and Jeremiah. This is Ezekiel. This is Zechariah. These are the prophets who spoke to God and, and heard from God and communicated that in that book that you have in your hand, the Bible. 
and of the commandment of us. Who's us? The apostles, Peter, James, John, those people who walked with and talked with and were informed by Jesus, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So Peter appeals to the unity and the clarity of the scriptures, the words of the prophet, the commandments of the apostles, the words of Jesus do not contradict one another, but rather they complement one another and they direct our thinking. Peter gives weight to the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the words of Jesus. In the Old Testament, the prophecies concerning the first coming of the Messiah and the second coming of the Messiah were often within one verse of each other. Remember, the the Bible speaks of the Messiah coming, being born of a virgin in Isaiah, being born in Bethlehem. Of saying the most amazing things that have ever been said. Of doing the most amazing things that have ever been done. Of the miraculous. Of having power over disease and demons and disasters and even death itself. Jesus, when he opens up the book of Isaiah, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel. To open up the eyes of the blind. To set free the captives. And you know what? Sometimes in that murky mix of Old Testament declarations, there was the statement that a suffering servant would come and be a sacrifice. But it also talked about a redeeming, glorious king who would come in glory. The New Testament clears that up. And we understand that Jesus came the first time, but Jesus will also come a second time. In the New Testament, it has been estimated that one in every 25 verses has something to do with the second coming of Jesus. Now, guess what? If you go to a Bible church and if you go to a place where they actually teach the Bible, if one out of every 25 verses has something to say about the second coming of Jesus, guess what subject is going to be a rather distinct and prolific subject. It's going to be the second coming of Jesus. At least 20 major passages may be selected that contribute to our understanding of the second coming. I don't have time to list them all, but some of the major ones include Matthew 19, verse 28, Matthew 23, 39, chapter 24, Verses 3 through 25, Mark 13, verses 24 through 37, Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 48. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse verse 30, they shall see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. I love Rawls interpretation of this. He goes, Jesus is coming back in the clouds with great glory. You know, I don't get that because I would think he would come with Pastor Chuck or Billy Graham. I go, Rawl, it's great glory, not Greg Laurie. (laughs) Oh, never mind. You know, many passages of Scripture speak of Jesus reigning in Zion, coming to Zion, going forth from Zion. All of these are references to the city of Jerusalem. 
According to the scriptures, his feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives. His return will result in the destruction of human armies attempting to conquer and destroy the holy city of Jerusalem, according to Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1, 2, and 3. Why is all of this important? Because the truth about the future doesn't necessarily lie on the History Channel or the Discovery Channel or the Science Channel. The truth does not lie in the endless apocalyptic speculations of sensational Bible teachers who neglect a careful study of the Scriptures. The truth does not lie in the unreasonable and unreasoning date-setters who constantly feel it necessary to predict the coming of Jesus according to their wild numeric schemes. Every generation has seen it. In the 1980s, we had Edgar Wisenot. His name should have been a clue right from this. Wisenot. He gave 88 reasons why Jesus would come in 88, and he had 88 failed reasons. And he goes, oh, I must have made a mistake. It's probably 89. And so he wrote a sequel, 89 reasons why Jesus would come. Harold Camping is the latest in date setters. This isn't his first expedition into date setting. In 1994, he said, I'm 99% certain that Jesus will come back in 1994. This year... He has given September 11th, 2011, as the day that Jesus will return. And he said, and I'm 100% sure. You know what I believe? On, December, on, on September 12th, I'm 100% sure that Harold Camping, hopefully every stupid person who was stupid enough to believe him, will say he is a false teacher, he's an unreliable Bible teacher, and he's not to be trusted. On September 13th, I'm hoping he will give me all of his radio stations. God knows. God knows. I hope and pray. That the Lord comes back now, today, tomorrow. I hope the Lord comes back. You know, the Bible says that he will come back at a day that you think not. Thank you, Harold Camping, for ruining that day for us. I want you to think about what the passage is saying. Peter begins with an emphasis on the mind. A pure mind. A clear mind, a focused mind, an informed mind. And, and in order for you to remember something, you have to be exposed to something. And so he says, I want you to have a pure mind that's informed by the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles and the person of Jesus Christ. That's going to be the best source of information about what is going to happen. And you can imagine that this requires a willingness to make Bible reading and Bible study a priority in your life. The apostles studied the words of the prophets. The apostles studied the words of Jesus. How can a person carefully read the Bible and come away with the idea that the second coming of Jesus and the judgment is not important? And so in verse 3, look what he says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. Peter anticipates and predicts 
scoffers. Now, this word scoffer is interesting in and of itself. Piazzo is a word that was used in the ancient Greek language to describe playtime among children. Have you ever seen children playing? It's a wonderful sight. There's nothing that gives me more joy than to see my grandchildren playing together. You know, one is um, six months. The other one is nine months, close to ten months. One of them is sort of standing up and the other one is sort of sitting up. But they're learning how to play. And I know that one year is going to turn to two years and two years is going to turn to four years. And pretty soon they're going to do other kind of childish things. They're going to call each other names. And one is going to say, I know you are, but what am I? Because children do strange things. They do immature things. Can we be blunt? Sometimes they do stupid things, don't they? But children aren't the only ones who do stupid things. Do adults ever do stupid things? Do they ever say dumb things? The word in means in or at. And so the words together meant to act like a child. And so Peter anticipates and predicts that people will make every effort to trivialize or deny the prophecies in the Old Testament, the promises of Jesus in the New Testament, the explanations of the apostles leading to hope called the blessed hope. What is it about this particular teaching in the New Testament that creates such division? Well, Peter has to address that issue. He says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. It's probably important for you to ask this question. When did the last days begin? The last days began With the coming of Jesus to the planet Earth. As a matter of fact, Paul writes that Jesus came, quote, in the fullness of time, Galatians 4, 4. Jesus Christ came, quote, in these last days for you. First Peter, chapter one, verse 20. God has, quote, in these last days spoken to us by his son. Hebrews, chapter one, verse two. John, the apostle wrote, it is the eschate. Aura. It is the last time. First John chapter two, verse 18. It's repeated in Jude chapter one, verse 18. When the apostle John writes the last time, it means the ultimate end, the last hour, what we in our culture call the stroke right before midnight. Now, in our culture and society, when the clock is getting ready to strike 12, it signals the end of one day. But it also signals the beginning of a new day. That's the meaning here. William Barclay describes it this way, quote, and biblical thought, the last time is the end of one age and the beginning of another. It's not only a time of ending, it's a time of a new beginning. It's not only a time of destruction, it's a time of recreation. It is last in the sense that. Things as they are pass away, but leads not to world obliteration, but world recreation. In other words, the last hour and the last days lead not to extinction, but to consummation. So what do we mean? The coming of Jesus and the return of Jesus 
the time between the coming of Jesus and the return of Jesus has been, I think, rightly characterized as the day of grace. This is the day when you can hear the message of grace. This is the day when you can hear that Jesus Christ really did come. That he loves you and that he died on the cross for your sins. That there is a God who has made a provision so that you need not be estranged from our Lord. There is a God who has made a provision so that you can experience grace and mercy and forgiveness, redemption and grace and, re- and reconciliation. Grace precedes judgment. The final chapter of the day of grace in human history is coming to a close. And it will come to a complete close when Jesus returns to the earth. When the Bible says these are the last days. It isn't simply to inform you or to locate you in human history. It's reminding you to avoid unnecessary affections and attachments to a world that's going to perish. But it's also to remind you that a glorious return of Jesus is going to take place. You know, it's been my experience that that news does one of two things to almost everyone I meet. It floods their heart with joy and hope. Or it fills their heart with fear. And I know that for some of you who might be feeling fear right now, you don't like that. It's an uncomfortable feeling. And you're wondering whether or not it's an unnecessary feeling. But I need you to allow your heart to speak for just a moment. I need you to ask and answer the question, where does your affection lie? What is it that you are concerned about? What is it that you care about? What is it that you are preoccupied with? In these last days, there are scoffers who doubt or outright deny the idea that Jesus will return. What motivates them? Some will say, I have a deep intellectual problem because, you see, I don't understand the epistemology involved with the second coming of Jesus. That's their way of saying Hey, how can we know anything about anything? How do we know about dispensational premillennialism or historical premillennialism or amillennialism or postmillennialism? It's interesting to me that Peter doesn't go into a raging debate about specifics. But rather, Jesus talks plainly about birth pains. He talks about many will claim to be the Messiah. People will be deceived by these messiahs. Wars, famines, earthquakes, pestilence will occur. Believers in Christ will be persecuted and killed. Believers will be witnesses of Jesus to kings. Many will turn from the faith. Betrayals by parents and brothers and friends. Increase in wickedness. Fearful events and signs from heaven. It all becomes not a way of intellectually satisfying the person, but rather to prepare the person for the reality of what's going to happen and Peter points out that the scoffers are motivated according to their own lusts. It isn't because they have an intellectual problem or a metaphysical or a philosophical problem. Peter doesn't pull any punches. He insists that the scoffers do not desire the moral demands of a holy God. 
He cuts right to the chase. They are offended by the moral demands of the Bible. There are people who think about the coming of of Jesus and they say, I don't want to give up my relationship with my girlfriend or I don't want to give up my relationship with my boyfriend. I don't want to stop making a boatload of money. I want to do what I want to do. I want to do what I want to do. They love their sin. They have no intention of changing their mind. They have no intention of changing their lifestyle. They entertain and present every excuse possible not to believe the Bible. And when none of that works, guess what? They mock you. And they mock your children. And they mock historical biblical Christianity. Aldous Huxley was a skeptic and a critic and one of the chief exponents of philosophical naturalism and evolution. He made toxic attacks on the Bible and Christianity. He wrote in his own words, in ends and means, these words he wrote, and I quote, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning, consequently assumed that it had not, and was able without any difficulty to satisfy reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning for this world is not concerned exclusively with the problem of pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political, unquote. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for at least being honest enough to say, hey, look, there's reasons why I'm doing what I want to do, because I want to live the way I want to live. You know, I have more respect for the person who walks into this sanctuary and sits in that chair and folds their arms and says, preacher, go ahead. Try and convince me that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I say. If I can talk you into it, someone a little more clever than me can talk you out of it. Coming to Christ isn't simply the acknowledgement of the facts surrounding the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It isn't simply even having an understanding of the Bible. Having your sins forgiven and coming into a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ means opening up your heart. It means despising your sin and your wickedness and your darkness and a willingness to allow God's Christ to be both Savior and Lord. Mr. Huxley rejected Christ and Christianity because he wanted to live by his own desires. Let me tell you another quick story. There was a young man who was staying at an uh, English estate with Mr. Huxley. And he begged him. He said, don't go to church today. Sit here and tell me why you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he goes, Mr. Huxley, you are a renowned philosopher a trained scientist, a spokesperson for skepticism. I don't have any desire to engage you in a debate. And he said, I'm, I'm not here to debate you. Just tell me what Jesus means to you. And the young man began to pour out his heart. 
He talked about his sin. He talked about his depravity. He talked about his wickedness and his loneliness and his emptiness and how God through Christ came into his life and that the light came on and the emptiness was feel filled and he experienced newness of life and hope. And Huxley began to weep. And he said, I wish to God that I could believe you. There's a metaphysical component. There's a supernatural element. We live in a world where we as parents are accused of child abuse and our children are accused of being unscientific or pre-scientific or deceived or ignorant or stupid. Because we believe that the Bible is true. Because we believe the testimony that the Bible says that a real God created human beings in time and in space and that there was something wrong with them at the most fundamental level. And Christ came to correct that. And so we have to tell our children that when people mock the Bible and mock us, they're doing it primarily because those people who mock Jesus and mock the Bible and mock us are unwilling to live up to the words of Jesus and the word of God. This isn't about reason or science or scholarship. It's about people walking after their own lusts. Because when it is about reason and when it is about science and when it is about scholarship. The stubborn facts will prevail. You see, the Christian is a friend of reason and a friend of science and a friend of scholarship. Reason is our servant, not our master. Jesus is our master. In verse four, he says, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continued as they were from the beginning of creation. Nothing's changed. The first coming of Jesus marked the turning point in human history. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue. No, they didn't. Jesus came. A real Jesus came to a real world. He died on the cross and it marked the turning point in human history. The fathers and the Jewish people and the religious leaders may have rejected their Messiah, but that didn't make him any less the Messiah. The second coming of Jesus will mark the terminus, the end point in human history. We have to look just very quickly at verses 9 and 10. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are in it shall be burned up. Peter's explanation in part for the mocking criticism is. The Lord Loves you. He doesn't hate you. He's not looking for an opportunity to roast you and toast you. He's looking for a reason so that you can come into a right relationship with God and Christ. By the way, let me point out. In every generation, people have predicted the coming of Jesus. 
I got saved in 1973. The next big date was 1978. The next big date was 1982. The next big date was 1988. Big question here. How many of you have become Christians? You accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior after 1988. Many of you. You know why Jesus is taking his sweet time? So that people like you can be saved. You should thank God. You should wake up in the morning, every morning. You should wake up and say, thanks, Lord. Thanks that there's one more day of grace. Peter draws the readers and hearers attention to the similar climate of Noah's day and Christ's second coming. Noah preached for 120 years while building the ark to Noah's contemporaries. The outlandish absurdity of building an ark to escape judgment was religious, ludicrous, ridiculous. His audience paid no attention to him. And when they did, they mocked him and his sons. And they committed themselves to eating and drinking and partying and saying everything is as it always was and everything will be as it always will be. And in verse five, it says, for this, they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water. Peter writes, and I want to draw your attention specifically to the phrase This they willfully forget. Does this sound like a person who has an intellectual problem or a philosophical problem or a reasoning problem? They're doing this on purpose. John Adams, after the Boston massacre, said facts are stubborn things and whatever may be our wishes our inclinations or the dictates of our passions they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence i love that facts are stubborn things for this they willfully forget fact by the word of god the heavens were of old you know what the bible says in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth Do you understand what the Bible says? It says that God created the heavens and the earth that he spoke. In the book of Colossians, it says that all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. And look what it says. By his word, the universe was old. Well, why does the universe look so old? Why does it look like it's 13 and a half billion years old? If God is really God, then why would he do something so deceptive as to create a universe that looks billions and billions of years when in fact it's not? When God created Adam and Eve, when God created Adam in the garden, did he take a little egg and a a sperm and put them in the dirt and then make a womb out of the dirt and watch as Adam grew nine months in a dirt clod and then crack him out of the dirt clod? Or did God create Adam mature, fully functioning, mature, able to speak and to reason, able to enter into friendship and fellowship with his creator? You see, it's not just a historical fact that God created Adam in a special act of creation. It's way more than that. It is the reality that God created you to have friendship and fellowship with him. 
Yes, you may have been conceived in your mother's womb and brought forth. But make no mistake about it. Every moment of every day was a preparation to bring you to a place where you would cry out to this God who is your creator, where you would acknowledge him as Lord, where you would experience forgiveness of sin and hope. The scoffer willfully forgets. The scoffer may enjoy an occasional proverb from the Old Testament, a moral statement from the New Testament, but feels no obligation to believe the judgment passages about a catastrophic flood or a coming judgment. Here's what they do. I believe the parts that I believe. And I reject the parts that I don't believe. So guess what? They become the measure of what constitutes right and wrong. How do you explain the first 11 chapters of Genesis? They'll say it's metaphor, allegory, poetry, pre-science. The scoffer wrestles or ignores three facts, according to Peter. They ignore fact number one. God created the heavens and the earth, that God is the creator and sustainer. The Bible teaches that existence, reality, the universe came by the word of God. He created things ex nihilo. That means from nothing. The earth experienced a global catastrophe, brought about the judgment of God. Peter points out that God did, in fact, destroy most of mankind in a massive global extinction. It makes perfect sense to me that the scoffer would say, that never happened. It couldn't happen. Peter points to the stubborn fact that it did happen. And he points to the stubborn fact that God has reserved this world, kept this world for a day of judgment by fire. Oz Guinness wrote, Faith does not feed on the air, but on facts. And here is the rub. If there's a creator, who is he? Where is he? And what does he want? That's an important question. What does he want from me? What does God want from me? You know, the Bible gives no hint at evolution or random processes as the instrument for creation or the explanation for our existence. The Bible goes to link the ends to make it clear that the universe is the product of a supernatural act by a divine being with a specific purpose in mind. And then Peter points out that this divine being with a specific and purpose in mind is going to bring all creation to a close. And clearly there are people who are free to accept or reject the Bible's claims. But the moment you reject the Bible's claims, you don't live in a vacuum or an emptiness or a void. You begin to fill that void with an explanation that makes sense to you. And now you have to ask and answer the question, well, what about my passion? What about my desires? What about my selfishness? What about violence in the world? What about hatred? What about this and what about that? And secular scientists and social scientists simply say, hey, we're hardwired that way. We are hardwired to act with wickedness. 
And you're not going to be judged by a God who created you, if he did in fact create you, to be wicked. Paul writes, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse, but they continue to feed the rationalizations. The excuses. You know what a rationalization is. It's a plausible but untrue excuse of why you do what you do. Well, I do have an excuse. If there really is a God, why didn't he make it more clear? If there's really a Jesus, why didn't it make it more clear? If Jesus really died on the cross for my sins, why didn't he make it more clear? If he really rose from the dead, why, why didn't he make it more clear? It couldn't be more clear. All of human existence has been for that moment to reveal Jesus, his life and death and resurrection. And so in verse six, it says, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. The Bible teaches the existence of a pre-flood world. The world perished, flooded with water. Flood traditions exist on almost every continent. The only continents that don't have a flood uh, tradition is the North Pole and the South Pole. Do you know why the North Pole and the South Pole don't have a flood tradition? Nobody lives there. But there are flood traditions in Asia, Australia, North and South America, Europe and Africa. Scholars have collected some 230 flood stories, traditions in various cultures. Skeptics are quick to point out the differences, but I'm quick to point out what they agree on. There was a barge, an ark, a boat, a floating vessel is involved. Everything is destroyed by water. Only a few people are saved by divine intervention. The flood is a judgment against the wickedness of humanity because one person was warned ahead of time. He was able to save himself and his family. Animals were saved with a few humans. Birds are sent out to determine the end of the flood. The vessel comes to rest on the top of a mountain and people are saved on the top of that mountain. 230 different traditions all saying that. But there are people who will say, it never happened. It never happened. It couldn't have happened. And then in verse 7, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire. You should note this. But the heavens... And the earth, which are now preserved. What does that mean? You will continue to exist and the planet will continue to exist. And it continues to exist by the same word. The end won't come. We will not be thrown off the trajectory of our globe. We will not have the atmosphere burned and all life cease to exist. It will not freeze in a consuming ice age. But it's reserved for fire. It's reserved for fire. It's reserved for fire. It's reserved for fire. When people look around you and they say it's all going to burn, it really is going to burn until the day of judgment. Look what else. And perdition and perdition of ungodly men. You may not like this, but that word perdition of ungodly men means that the wicked people will be judged. 
for their sin and their wickedness. Secular scientists concede that the world will disappear, the sun will die, the universe itself, though vast and in their estimation old, will one day come to a close. But you know what they can't answer? Why is it here? And why are you here? Why do you exist? The day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men, the laughter will cease. And the laughter will turn to weeping. And the skeptic and the scoffer who found comfort reliving their HBO specials. The History Channel, the Science Channel, the Discovery Channel. Can you imagine them comforting themselves in hell going, but I was famous once. I was the world's biggest skeptic, critic. You know, this becomes part of the point that you need to understand. The evildoer will be punished. God will be glorified. Jesus will return. The mocker, the laughter, the jeering, the teasing, the joking, the pointing out of the absurdity of your beliefs, the making fun of Scripture, the ridiculing of the teachings of Jesus and the apostles are unwittingly the fulfillment of the prophecy of Peter. The next time someone mocks you and makes fun of you, the next time a person mocks the Bible and makes fun of Jesus, you need to turn to Second Peter chapter 3 and go, this is it. You're fulfilling prophecy. You are fulfilling prophecy right before my very eyes. What do you mean? Hey, look. Look what it says about you in the Bible. This is crazy, isn't it? Remember, they're willfully ignorant. Because in some dark and empty corner of their life, they love darkness rather than light. But for the person who's sick of the darkness... For the person who's sick of the wickedness, for the person who's sick of the emptiness, for the person that no matter how many times they try to please themselves, no matter how many times they get high, no matter how many times they try and satisfy their longings and urges and desires and, and ways that no matter how many times they try to do it, they always come up empty, 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 empty. There's a Savior. Jesus Christ, the Lord. He's willing to forgive your sin and to cleanse you. And a wonderful day of vindication and a wonderful day of glory is coming. And Jesus will return. And everything that's wrong, he will make right. And everything that's wicked, he will do away with it. And the Bible says there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray, I pray, Lord, that you would purify our mind and our heart, that you would make it pure, that, Lord, we could inform our thoughts and our beliefs by the words of the prophets, by the words of the apostles, by the word of Jesus. Lord, we pray that we would not be discouraged when friends laugh, 
Teachers mock. Critics jeer. Lord, we pray that we would just simply remember that the wickedness and the darkness and the excuse to continue to sin lies deep, deep, deep in their heart. We pray for them, Lord. We pray that the darkness would lift, that the scales would leave their eyes and that they would hear and understand the gospel. And Heavenly Father, I pray for that person whose life is filled with doubt and discouragement. Lord, I pray that they would allow themselves the great and wonderful privilege to inform their thinking by the prophets in the Old Testament, by the apostles in the New Testament, and by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.